Amen. All right, Psalm 113. If you're turned there, Psalm 113, we pick up this evening, and you'll notice Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, we kind of come to another uh, particular section in the book of Psalms. These are referred to as the Hallel Psalms or the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. And again, the word Hallel is just a term that means praise. So they're praise Psalms. And the reason they're entitled this way, this particular uh, subcategory of the Psalms, 113 through Psalm 118, is they were Psalms, particularly we know that the Jews used uh, to worship God and to praise the Lord, particularly during the time of the feast. And specifically, at least the three mandatory feasts. Remember, there were numerous feasts, but there were three required or obligatory feasts that all Jewish males who were 20 years old and above were required to be in attendance at Jerusalem to participate in and worship. And that particularly, remember, was Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, And particularly, we certainly know that these feasts, you can see some of the indications have references to things regarding the Passover, but they would use these psalms to worship the Lord, both, we believe, during the time of their pilgrimage, as they would head up to Jerusalem, as they would come from different areas around Palestine, and some people even living outside of the different areas of the borders of what we know as Israel, coming back to Jerusalem, there to the capital city and to the temple precincts during the time of these annual feasts that took place. Uh, Some believe that in regards to Passover, that Psalm 113 and 114 were sang prior to the meal, and then 115 through 18 were utilized afterwards. But we do know that they were used purposely uh, during the time of these particular feasts. Psalm 113 begins by telling us, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O servants of the Lord, Praise the name of the Lord and blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore from the rising of the sun to its going down. The Lord's name is to be praised. And so you can tell by beginning to look at this first Psalm of these feast Psalms or Hillel Psalms that they were utilized to put people's focus upon the greatness of God to get people in an attitude of worship, to bring people into a mindset of rendering praise to the Lord. Again, when we see that term, praise the Lord, that's basically that Hebrew term, hallelujah or alleluia. And it's a compound term meaning to praise as well as to praise particularly the Lord, Yahweh God or Jehovah God as he was known by the people of Israel. And these psalms were intended to get people in that attitude, in that mindset as they went up. Again, and think about it. These feasts were basically week-long durations where the people would cease from their labors. They would stop working in their fields. And they were basically like week-long holidays or vacations where they just gathered together and they just gave worship to God and they spent time together as God's people And God set aside these times where they would particularly remember, particularly Passover. Remember that celebrated the exodus out of Egypt and the powerful deliverance that God brought as he rescued his people out of slavery and bondage and misery in Egypt. 
and through the, the blood of the Passover lamb, uh, the wrath passed over them and they were able to be brought out in a mighty deliverance and God brought them into the promised land, which of course is a picture of the promised life, this picture of salvation through the Lamb of God, Christ, our Passover, and how God brings us not into a promised land, but he brings us into a promised life, a promised life in the spirit where we experience that land like they did flowing with milk and honey, and they inherited all those things as they overcame their enemies and experienced the blessings of the Lord. And then, of course, tabernacles celebrated that preservation that God brought to them through the wilderness where they failed, remember the first time, to enter in because of their unbelief. And so because of that, remember, they spent 40 years for each one of the days of their unbelief and their unwillingness to trust God and to enter in by faith to what God wanted for them. God allowed them to wander for 40 years and the generation that was going to go in was not permitted to. And God said, your very children that you thought would be destroyed if you just followed me and obeyed my will they're going to be the ones now who will live on and inherit the land. And God let them over a 40-year period, that whole generation, die off. But during the 40 years of just wandering aimlessly and kind of fruitlessly in the wilderness, God still preserved them and he blessed them. He brought water from the rock and manna from heaven. And he just did wonderful things to take care of them, even in the midst of the time as they were bearing the consequences of their own wrong choices God preserved them as they tabernacled. Remember that the idea of tabernacle is they lived in these outside booths, and that's what they did. They'd move outside for the week, and they would live in kind of these lean-to shelters as families, and as they would be out there kind of doing sort of a, a camping-type style living arrangement for a week, and the children would ask, you know, Daddy, why, why are we out here? Why are we not in our house? Why are we sleeping under this kind of you know, lean to shelter. And it was a time where the father would explain to the children the spiritual truths. Well, the reason why is because for 40 years, we tabernacled out under the stars and God preserved us and he took care of us. And he gave us a pillar of cloud by day to shield us from the sun and a pillar of fire by night. And the father would explain these spiritual truths again to put into the minds of the children the understanding of God's faithfulness. And God's power to protect them and to provide and to preserve them as they wandered around through the wilderness. And so these psalms were used to bring the people into this attitude of worship that they would praise the Lord as his servants. And that they would notice, verse 1, praise the name of the Lord. And again, whenever the Bible speaks of the name of the Lord or the name of a person, it's indicating a person's character, who they are. When, when you mention someone by name, a picture comes to your mind, what that person looks like, who they are, if you know them to some degree. So when, when you hear someone's name, you think about who they are entirely as a person. And so this is the idea. When the Bible talks about the name of the Lord, it's talking about a representation of all of who he is in his person, in his character, his attributes. And notice here, they were to praise, they were to honor, to glorify, to celebrate who God was, to be thankful for who he was in his nature, in his person. And they were to bless the name of the Lord, he says, from this time forth and forevermore. The idea is they were to give glory to him for who he was. And whenever you give glory to God, the idea of giving glory to God to praise him, to bless him, is really is to kind of make God look good. 
That, that's kind of, I guess, the best idea that if we can almost bring an idea into our mind, you know, if you're boasting about your children or you're speaking about someone in a favorable way, this is the idea, is that we're to speak about God in a good way. So we should certainly be doing that in the sanctuary in the house of God as we sing praise songs to him and we offer prayers that are not just requests but also praise and thanksgiving. But that's the idea here, to bless the name of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord is to speak well of God, to speak well of him, to make God look good. And the reality is, is he deserves to look good because he's an incredible God, right? When we think of everything we know about him as he's revealed to us, he's certainly worthy of all of our worship. And so here the encouragement to the people of God to do that as his servants, both from this time, he says, and forevermore should be unceasing. And notice verse three, he also says, from the rising of the sun to its going down. Now that doesn't just indicate the Lord's name should be praised, as he said, verse three, from the moment we get up until the moment we go to bed. I think that, you know, that's fair to say there that from the first moment we get out of bed, if anything, our, our, the sooner we come into the consciousness of the fact that God is real and there for us and good, you know, hopefully before our feet hit the floor, Lord, thank you. You kept me alive another night. You gave your beloved rest. Lord, however that was, you gave me some sleep. And I know that's you know, changing for all of us. It certainly changed for me over the years. I remember the days when I was younger and I would just go to sleep and then magically we just wake up in the morning six, you know, eight hours later and it was like, wow, how did that happen? And, and then I kind of got to a phase in my life and I tried for a while to blame it on that I drank coffee and I realized that's not it. There's, there's other factors now. We're now I kind of just sleep in spurts, which, and I don't know if that's just because God wants to increase my prayer life or what it is, but now I kind of just, I sleep in spurts. Thankfully, we don't use alarm clocks anymore. That's great because now I can't look and go, it's only been 28 minutes. Oh my goodness. You know, like, I have my, my phone now. So it just lays there and I just don't even look at it until the alarm goes off. But, you know, certainly I think the moment we wake up, we should be thankful. Lord, you gave me some rest. You helped my body to rejuvenate, to do what it's supposed to do. And Lord, you kept my heart beating. You kept my lungs working. You kept me breathing. You've sustained me for another night. And Lord, you've given me a new day. This is the day you've made. Help me to rejoice, to be glad in it. Help me to serve you. Thank you, Lord, that, that no matter what's on this day's agenda, right? And sometimes we may wake up and we realize, oh, man, I know what this day entails. But the reality is, is if you know the Lord, you don't have to do it alone. God's with you and he's faithful and he's going to be involved in your life. And that's a reason to praise the Lord from the moment the sun rises and we wake up and then to lay our head back and on the pillow at night. Lord, you got me through the day. Thanks, Lord. You helped me in this situation and you got me through that moment and you, you know, helped me to navigate this. And so I think to one degree, the rising of the sun to its going down. But I think that the, the other more obvious picture here, the psalmist is conveying is from the rising of the sun to its going down. The picture there is from east to west, from horizon to horizon, from where the sun rises to the sun sets. The idea is all over the earth, whether they were in Jerusalem or wherever they were at. That the Lord's name, no matter where we are geographically, we never stop praising the Lord. Which means no matter where we're at in life and what's going on, the one thing we are is we are continuous worshipers because the Lord's name is worthy to be praised. And then he begins to tell us why, as if we need a reason, the Lord deserves our worship. He says, verse 4, the Lord is high 
above all nations and his glory above the heavens. So he speaks of the exalted position of God. Notice he is high above all nations. Boy, that's a great encouragement when we see nations raging against one another and wars and rumors of wars, which are all things that Jesus told us would be happening and continue to happen as we come closer and closer with the birth pangs to the time of the coming of the Lord in the last days. And, and you know, our, our media has a way to want to inflate things and make them more intense. I mean, all we see about right now on the news, of course, right now is the, the, the horrific you know, bombings and the war that's going on in Ukraine and what's happening in that situation, which is very tragic and sad. You know, but, but what we fail to realize sometimes is that's a media-emphasized thing, and what we're not paying attention to is that's happening all over the planet, folks. All over the planet. You know, some of you may be on Samaritan's Purse mailing list. If you just got the most recent mailing from Samaritan's Purse, it talks all about the horrific conditions in Ethiopia. And the horrible wars and the things that are going on in that area there, particularly and how for literally decades, people have been struggling and suffering and there's horrible conflicts and things going on. And the reality is these kind of things are happening all over the planet. The sad thing is, is a lot of times we're just disconnected from it because the media doesn't always put the spotlight on that. The media puts all the spotlight on what it wants you to put all your focus on because the media doesn't serve to inform us of certain things. It wants to conform your opinion to what it wants you to think about and how it wants you to think. That's how media works. Today it does anyway. Back in the day, it might have just been informative. But the media doesn't function like that anymore. And it's very important to recognize that no matter what media source you use. And you can pick your own poison. To me, there's a degree of poison in all of it. This is the only thing I really trust anymore. But but our world is continuously dealing with conflicts all over the place. And so from nation to nation, no matter where we are, no matter where at, there are people, understand, praising the Lord all over the earth. From the eastern hemisphere to the western hemisphere, they are loving and worshiping God. But the wonderful thing is, despite what the nations are doing, raging against one another, God wants us to remember he's high above, he says there. He is high above all those nations. The nations will rage and do what they do, but the Lord is ruling above all those things, and we get to know that. And that brings tremendous peace of mind for us to not have to get overly, you know, just anxious and overwhelmed of what's going to happen and the world's falling apart. He says, His glory, it's above the heavens, it's exalted. He says, verse 5, who is like the Lord our God? That's a rhetorical question. No one. <laughs> no one. You ever notice that? More and more, the, you know, the longer we walk with the Lord, the more we get to know of the Lord, the more impressed we become with him. And I find the longer I've walked with the Lord, the more I'm inclined to worship. Because the more I discover about him, the more I find more reasons to worship him, whether it's continually growing and realizing in my own depth of depravity and sinfulness, which makes me realize truly how deep his salvation is and his forgiveness is, or whether it's just the things that the Lord does in our lives, we just continue to find more and more, man, Lord, there is nobody like you. Nobody like you. 
Lord, I'm not like you. People around me aren't obviously always like you. But, Lord, there is no one like you. No one one like you, he says, who dwells on high. And notice now what he commends God for. He dwells on high, verse 5, but who humbles himself. That is, he condescends. God, the exalted God. He humbles himself and condescends to behold, that is, to look upon the things that are in the heavens and the earth. Now notice there, the reference to in the heavens, the picture there is in the heavens, not the eternal heavens, but as I mentioned Sunday morning in our study, in in the heavens in the sense of the atmospheric heavens. So he's talking about what's happening here on this planet. And notice, God is so incredibly high, he has to humble himself and condescend just to look upon the stars and the planets and the, the atmospheric heavens. God is so great, He's so exalted above everything, he actually has to stoop down to behold, to look upon the things that are happening here in the heavens and the earth and this planet that we're existing in and what's going on. But the reality is he does condescend and humble himself, though he's so great, he doesn't remain detached. He's a personal God. And because he's loving and personal, he does stoop down and he beholds, he looks upon and sees what's going on on this earth in you and I's lives. I mean, think about that. And that's the one thing about, honestly, Christianity that in some ways distinguishes it from a lot of other quote-unquote world religions is that we believe in a personal God, an all-powerful God, but at the same time, a personal God who literally says as he lived among us in the flesh, Jesus says the very hairs of your head. Each one has a number. In other words, I know you that intimately, he's saying. I don't just know your address. I don't just know your circumstances. I literally know you. Psalm 139 says, before a word is on our tongue, he already knows it. Before we have a thought, he perceives our thoughts from afar. Before we even begin to think something about something, God says, I know what he's going to think. I know what she's going to think right now. That God knows us that intimately that he stoops down, he humbles himself, and becomes integrated in the affairs of this earth. More than that, integrated, not just in the affairs of this earth. Oh, well, yeah, God's involved with, I mean, the big stuff, you know, these national conflicts. and and No, God's involved in the small stuff. He's involved in your life. Jesus said, you know, the, the, the birds of the air, they don't sow or reap or, you know, store away in, in nests and barns, and yet your father feeds them. He takes care of them. How much more of great value are you, Jesus said. So again, what a wonderful thing to realize that here we have this all-powerful God, so much power, so much glory and greatness, and yet he condescends, he stoops down in humility to behold, to become involved in our everyday affairs, our little personal lives, to know what's going on in your life, to help you, to be acquainted, and to assist you however is needed. Man, that, that is incredibly impressive. And that makes me all the more recognize that I got a big pride issue in my life. Because sadly, sometimes we're very quick to kind of not pay attention to the affairs of everybody else around us on the earth at times where maybe we should be humbling ourselves and being a little bit more willing to become engaged or involved to help somebody around us. But sometimes we're just, we got a little bit too high of a standard for our own self or our own life. And here it says that God Almighty humbles himself. And he takes time to condescend and to behold, to become aware of people's pains and hardships and situations 
in what's going on on the earth. And of course, the greatest way that God completed what verse six describes, verse five and six, is of course through Jesus, right? That's what Philippians two describes, how Jesus came down to this earth. He humbled himself, becoming a man, taking a body of flesh and even became obedient, the Bible says, to death and a death on a cross. The most excruciating and shameful form of death. Again, that humbling of Jesus as he came down and experienced earthly life with us so that he could associate with us. What a beautiful description of exactly what God did through his own son there in verse 5 and 6. Verse 7, he also says another reason the Lord is worthy to be praised and to be blessed and honored is he says, verse 7, he raises the poor out of the dust. He lifts the needy out of the ash heap. Now, the ash heap is kind of a picture of what they would burn or consume a lot of times the idea there would be like burning up all of your rubbish and what's left you know like a garbage dump area that's kind of the picture there and he says one of the things that god is doing is he raises up the lowly the poor and the needy out of the dust out of the garbage and he seats them with princes with the princes of his people so he's describing there in verse seven how god brings about powerful changes in people's lives in his loving compassion and in his great power he is a god of great reversal he can take someone who is poor and needy who can do nothing for themselves when you're poor and needy the idea is you have no resources at your disposal to change your circumstances you're poor and not only poor you're needy meaning you need help There's nothing that you can do for yourself or your situation. And it says, God looks upon those in that situation as he's the great God dwelling on high, but humbles himself to behold the things of the earth. And he takes notice of those who are poor and needy. And he says, you know what? I know you can't do anything about your situation, but I can change your situation. And so God at times will intervene to show his compassion. And if it's in accordance with what his purposes are he can take those who are poor and needy in the dust and the ashes and raise them up and give them a position with princes the idea is he can exalt the lowly and sit them in a place of favor and and different status and he can completely reverse things now god can do both he can take a prince and he can humble him down to to the ashes right and so he can dethrone a, a king and a prince and put them down in the dust and in the same way he can take someone who's poor and needy and he can raise them up and give them an exalted position by bringing about his power to change their circumstances. And and what a wonderful thing. I look at verse 7, and right away, to me, it resonates with exactly what God has done for us spiritually, not just circumstantially. Because spiritually, that describes, verse 7, our condition. We were poor in spirit, and we were very needy in our impoverished spiritual condition. We needed forgiveness we needed to be spared from hell we were needy because we were broken people in our sin and who we were before we were in a relationship with jesus christ and god saw us in that poor needy condition in our soul and god reached in and he elevated us and forgave us made us his child and now the bible says he's given us the position of kings and priests talk about a change of position god's given us the status of being king's kids when we were once poor, needy beggars in the garbage dump of our old life. He says, verse 9, and he also grants the barren womb a home 
like a joyful mother of children, praise the Lord. So he speaks there again of just another way, verse 8 and 9, that God brings about powerful change in people's lives. Here he speaks of how he has the power to take the woman with a barren womb. And understand, in that culture particularly, that wasn't only utterly heartbreaking. That's been heartbreaking in any generation. When a woman yearns to have a child and her womb is barren and she's unable to conceive and to experience being a natural mother giving birth to children. But in that culture, it was incredibly shameful as well. It was a disgrace. It was, it was considered humiliating because people looked upon you wrongly as if somehow you were cursed of God because God's word says in Genesis to be fruitful and multiply. So wrongly, some people deduced that if your womb was barren, that you were under the scourge of God's displeasure. And so people carried around a degree of shame because they, they didn't look upon children as an inconvenience. That's modern culture. They looked upon children as a blessing, as an advantage, as a way to carry on your name, as a way to produce what God's purposes were in the life of another person as you raised your children. So it was heartbreaking and disgraceful if your womb was barren. So God sees, he says, the barren woman in that condition. And by his miraculous power, he can take a barren womb that can't produce and he can heal and he can bring about miraculous change and bring about fruit from something that was not fruitful once before. And again, we see the word of God time and time again where God did that. And notice how many times you notice when you trace from all the way back in Genesis, beginning with Sarah and Abram, right? The beginning of the Jewish nation, Sarah's womb was barren. And God did this for Sarah to begin the Jewish nation. Then God did it for Rebecca's barren womb and then Rachel's barren womb and then Hannah's barren womb to give Samuel the prophet heard of God who ultimately would be turned over to the Lord and used greatly. So many, many times God would begin a great work of his spirit from a barren womb, from a barren situation where there was no fruitfulness and there had not been any fruitfulness and it looked like it was impossible for life and fruitfulness to come. And then God would miraculously intervene and with a work of his power and spirit, he would bring great change and powerfully transition things to become fruitful that were once barren so that joy could come as they celebrated the barren womb turning into a joyful mother of many children. So he says, what a great reason to praise the Lord, the God who brings powerful changes into our lives. Psalm 114 then begins to speak about some of the experiences of Israel. Notice we'll see it's a celebration of God's redemptive power a celebration of God's mighty presence. You notice over in verse seven, that's the theme of the psalm. He says, tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. So this psalm is a celebration of the powerful presence of God and what the presence of God can do in a given situation among people. He says, verse one, Psalm 114, verse 1, when Israel went out of Egypt, so he's talking about that deliverance, remember, which is what Passover celebrated. So you can understand as they were singing about this on their way up to celebrate the feast of Passover. When Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, referring to their time in Egypt, as they heard the foreign language of the Egyptians when they were there as slaves and they spoke Hebrew. And so they were in a foreign land. And so Egypt, again, of course, always is a picture of a type of the world 
where, where the language and the communication is much different and it's foreign compared to the way God's people would speak and understand things. And that's why as we live in this, in, to a degree, world, it's like an Egypt to us. Many things are foreign, the way the world thinks and speaks compared to the way that we should be thinking and speaking. It's like being in a place, like, do, I don't feel like I even speak the same language as anybody anymore. Right. <laughs> because to a degree, that's, that's the problem. We're in the world, but we're not of the world, the Bible says. And so God has brought them out of Egypt in this great deliverance. He set them free from slavery, brings them out of Egypt. And when God did that by his mighty power at work, it says, verse two, Judah became his sanctuary. The word sanctuary means a dwelling place. So pictures that God began to dwell in a personal way. His presence powerfully was being manifested as a dwelling among his people. And Israel, the nation as a whole, became his dominion. That is his people whom he ruled over and governed. So this picture is here as God's power is at work. He's dwelling among his people by his presence. He's ruling over them in great power. And notice what happens when God's presence is being manifest among his people, when his power is ruling over his people and he is at work among his people's lives. He begins to describe what the presence of the Lord did through the lives of God's people. Verse three says the sea talking about the Red Sea saw it and fled. And then the Jordan turned back and the mountains skipped like rams the picture there is like joyfully skipping around with jubilation celebrating the little hills like lambs what ails you O sea, that you fled why was it that you fled O jordan river that you turned back O mountains that you skipped like rams O little hills like lambs he says tremble O earth at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. So when God's presence was powerfully at work and his presence was operating through the lives of his people, we're told that some incredible, miraculous things happen. He mentions two times when the power of God had great effect. Verse three there, at the parting of the Red Sea, and then 40 years later at the parting and drying up of the Jordan River. Right? The parting of the Red Sea was as they were being led out of Egypt, being brought out. They come to the Red Sea, and, and there's sort of a, an obstacle to the one side and an obstacle to the other side, the sea in front of them. And now the Egyptians have decided they're going to come in hot pursuit, and they're closing in on them. And the people of God are beginning to panic, and they begin to get upset with Moses. Yo, you all about following God, huh? Here we are following God, and now we're following God, and we're in a tight spot. I thought you said we were following God. Why don't you just leave us back in Egypt to be buried in the graves there? And, and, and they're beginning to complain against Moses, trying to bring them into the better thing that God had for them because the circumstances didn't look like it was working out visually at first. And so God ultimately speaks to Moses and he says, listen, I want you to tell the people to stand still and to see the salvation of the Lord. And God orchestrates, remember that mighty miracle where he parts the Red Sea and it becomes dry ground for them to pass through. They pass through the Red Sea. And as they get to the other side, then God closes the sea on their enemies. He doesn't just deliver them out. He destroys and removes everything that could have hindered or stopped them afterwards as well as he gets rid of their enemies and drowns them in the very same sea that he brought them through. And they see the mighty hand of God. They see what the presence of God does 
when they're yielded to his presence and God's ruling over their life and they're walking in step with God's will, there was no obstacle that was going to stand in the way. And when it looked like that there was no way forward, God made a way. Because that's how God works. And that's what God wanted them to see. God wanted them to see, look, I had to box you in so that I could blow your mind. (laughs) I mean, that was the whole lesson there. The whole lesson was if God brought them to the Red Sea and there was already a bridge there. Oh, God, thanks for putting the bridge there. Nobody would have said that. They just would have went over the bridge and not even thought about it. But God brought them to the position they were in circumstantially through his sovereign work to put them in a place where they looked like they were boxed in. It seemed like there was constant obstacles no matter which way they looked. And it looked like time was running out. The Egyptians were closing in and they're thinking, we are done. That's it. We're not going to make it. We should have never stepped forward. And and God says, look, now I'm going to show you what I can do. And that it's not you who does it, but that if you trust me in faith as your God and you follow me and walk with me and just do my will, I will open doors and do miraculous things at times in a way where it'll be evident no one but me did it. And so God made a way where there had never been a way before and they did nothing but watch what God did and trust the Lord and walk forward in faith. That's all they did. That was their whole part of participating. They just saw what God did as the sea fled from the presence of the Lord and they walked through. And what a wonderful thing, you know, that God can make a way where there's never been a way before. God can make a way forward where there is no way to bring us forward into the thing that he has on the other side, the next season for us. And then they wander through the wilderness for 40 years, right? They don't, they don't follow through with everything God wants from him. He tries to bring them to the promised land. They blow it. He spent time wandering around for 40 years. You would think at that point, God would say, look, all right, been there, done that. Last time I did the whole Red Sea thing for you. I mean, I've done this water from the rock stuff, the manna stuff. And, and now here you are. Now you're at the Jordan again. And, and they find themselves 40 years later, same scenario, just a little bit different circumstances. And God does it again. God parts the Jordan. And he says, when you put your foot in the water, then it'll open. And, and, and then you'll go in and you'll be able to enter into the promised land. But there was that obstacle before they got in and they had to, by faith, trust the Lord to bring them into the promised land that he had for them. And God parted the Jordan. And when he parted the Jordan, it says that this time as they went forward, he asked the priest to stand in the middle of the Jordan while the waters were like a flood stage wall on both sides of them. And they had to stand firm on dry ground till all the people passed over, the spiritual leaders. Did. And I wonder if they were saying, can you kind of hurry like hurry up hurry up hurry up but there what did they do they had to step forward in faith because the waters didn't part till what till they stepped in the waters didn't part and the miracle of god didn't happen until they took the step forward in faith when they took the step forward in faith then the waters parted then god dried up the ground they passed through and they didn't just have to step forward in faith then the whole picture in, in the jordan situation is they then had to stand in faith They had to stand there in faith until God finished what he was doing and brought them in once again. And the fact that these two scenarios are put together here as they celebrated the the power of God's presence and God's work, to me is just a reminder, and I think to them was supposed to be a reminder, that in the same way God's worked once before, God can do it again. He can do it again. What he did at the Red Sea for one generation— Remember, it was what? A whole different generation at the Jordan. 
And I think it's important for us to remember that as the Lord's people. Because so many times we're glorying in the glory days. Oh, remember that? Oh, I read about what they did in church history. Oh, I read about the revival here. And we're always consumed about what God once did. And I'm not saying there's something of encouragement of that. But the problem is we tend to never get beyond what God did at the Red Sea in that generation. He can now do for us at the Jordan in our generation. Because he can do it again. And he's a God who doesn't change. And he doesn't show partiality. He showed the same power of his presence and grace to every generation. Each had to do their part, yielding to the Lord, trusting in faith. But it was this wonderful reminder. He wanted his people to be in this awareness that it was all his presence. It was the presence of the Lord. It was not the, the faithfulness of the people. It was not their prayers. It was, not their, it was nothing other than God's grace. That's all it was. And this was the important lesson and why he even says rhetorically, what ails you, O.C.? Why, Jordan, did you turn back? The idea is there was no human answer to it. It was a divine work of God. It was just God's power, and God wanted his people to be humbled by that, to tremble at the presence of the Lord. He says, verse 8, And who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of waters? Again, that other miracle where in Exodus 17, remember, God brought water from a rock. Again, God miraculously took something that looked impossible, and God broke a hardened rock, and not only did he break the rock in half, but he actually brought life out of something that was a dead stone. A dead stone. There's no, there's no life in rocks. You may have had a pet rock when you were a kid. I'm sorry to bust your bubble. But there's no life in rocks. They're, they're dead stones. And God brought life and water and refreshment. Water is a source of renewal that can bring life back to plants and cause things to flourish again. And here, I think it's just an important reminder as God sustained them when they were thirsty with water from the rock. God can take something that is dead and hard as a stone. And if it's a part of his plan and his purpose and his timing, God can take something that's completely hard and break it in half. And bring forth life out of something that looks completely dead and hardened. And again, these are the reasons God says it's my presence, my power, that you should praise me and celebrate these realities. That I am a God who can do this. Can we do that? No. But at least we know that we serve a God who can. And if it be within his purposes, thank goodness at least we have the option that if God so chooses, he might do that. Way better to just know that it's completely impossible because it's an infixable thing in our given situation. Psalm 115, let's quickly look through this one before we conclude. He says, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy and your truth. Now, what a fitting psalm after the last psalm, particularly good prayer there and a good way to reflect, not unto us, Lord. We didn't do anything special at the Red Sea we didn't do anything special with the Jordan River, and we didn't get out our pick and axes and break open the rock and find some water inside for ourselves. Lord, not unto us, it was you, and so therefore to your name give the glory. You know, that is a great prayer to pray if we want to see God's power and see God work. Lord, we want you to work. We want to see your power, but please, Lord, not unto us that no attention would be upon us, 
but make sure you work in a way where you get the glory. You know, that is part of the problem. When we want God to work and we want to take a bow for God or we want to get a standing ovation for God, that's a real quick way to shut God's power and work right back down because God is working in a way where no flesh would glory in his presence. And this is the heart, the purity that he wants us to have. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name, Give yourself glory, Lord. It's your mercy and your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? Verse 3, he declares, but our God is in heaven. The picture is reigning. He's the real God, and he does whatever he pleases. Their idols, that is the foreigners around them, those who did not know Yahweh God, their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. So he's contrasting here, the true and living God and a real and a made-up God that was just worshipped by people as a false idol. And he says, our God is the real God. He's in heaven, and therefore, because he's the real God in heaven, I, like verse 3, declares that God does whatever he pleases. I have that underlined. I'm just, uh, and thank you. Thank you, Lord. You do whatever you please. God doesn't do what I please He doesn't do what people please. He doesn't do what national leaders please. God does whatever he pleases. He's completely secure like that. And I'm very thankful for that. I'm very, very thankful that he is as sure and comfortable and secure as the reigning God in heaven, that he is in total control and has all power to do whatever he pleases. And the sooner we come to that place of recognizing there is a God, I'm not him And he does whatever he pleases, and my job is to humbly submit to that and to embrace it. Lord, I don't understand, but you're in control. And the sooner we do that, the much better we are. Now, as he contrasts the idols, other things people worship other than God, he says the idols that others are worshiping of silver and gold, where they look more shiny and seem impressive materially, but he says they're the work of men's hands. The idea is they're unable to act. These are things worship gods and idols that men had to make. God made us. God's in heaven. God does whatever he pleases. He has power to act and is in control. These idols have no ability to act. They needed the help of men even to be created. And he says, therefore, in light of them, verse uh, 5, regarding the idols that men made, they have mouths, but they do not speak. They create little eyes on them, but they don't see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they don't smell. They have hands, but they can't handle. They have feet, but they don't walk. That is, they can't go with them. Remember, they had to carry their little gods. Always bad when you have to carry your God rather than your God carrying you. Nor do they mutter through their throat. So the contrast here, again, is just the vain inability of these idols to help in any way in contrast to god god does behold and see everything that's going on in our lives and god sees even what's going to happen in our life and that's why he can help us and prepare us and get us to the next thing because god sees god's aware and he says but these idols they don't see what's going on in our lives they have ears but but they don't they don't hear our cries they don't hear our prayers we have a god who listens He listens to your tears, and when you plead with him and you pour out your heart to him, he listens to what's going on in your life attentively and compassionately. And and he says, they have hands, but their hands can't do anything. 
They can't lend a hand, right? They create little hands on these gods, but they had to make the hands on those gods. We have a God who can give us a hand, who can extend his hand to help us, who can get his hand involved in our situation and do things for us. We have a God who we don't have to carry him. He carries us. All we have to do is follow his footsteps, see where he's going and stay in step with him because he's always with us. Now, he says, verse 8, regarding these who make and worship these gold and silver statues and idols of all the you know, different deities that are in existence. Look at the insight, he says, verse 8. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. Now, notice the spiritual principle there in verse 8. These gods of gold and silver, they're statues, they're hard, cold, dead metal statues and people worship them and he says those who make these cold hard dead metal statues those who make these kind of gods they become like those kind of gods cold and dead and hard and unsensitive and unaware and he says so is everyone who trusts them the spiritual principle god's word is giving to us there which is very important is people become just like what they worship. What you worship will determine what you become. If you worship the living God, the real true God, the God of creation, if you worship the Lord Jesus Christ by your worship of him, you will supernaturally start to become more like him because you always become, the Bible says we become just like what we worship, just like who we worship and who we trust. We, it's a spiritual principle. It's just automatic. We become like who and what we worship. So that's very important. If we're worshiping God, that's very beneficial because gradually God will make you little by little more like himself as you worship him and become like him. It's the glorious thing of 2 Corinthians 3 where it tells us that we are being transformed from glory to glory by the spirit of the Lord. As we simply behold the Lord and we worship the Lord, the spirit of the Lord gradually and supernaturally is transforming us and changing us and making us more like Jesus. We don't have to try and act more like Jesus. We don't have to try and become more like Jesus. Supernaturally, it's a process. As we just worship Jesus and worship the Father, the Spirit makes us more like who we worship. Now, that also means this. If the highest and most important thing or person in your life is anything other than the one true and living God and his son, Jesus Christ, it's gonna have a detrimental effect upon your life. That's why people who worship success and power and career and this golden thing and that shiny thing and, and all the other things. Again, worship is just the thing you give your highest devotion to. Idolatry is worshiping anything other than God. So idolatry can be the giving of our full devotion and highest attention and commitment to anything if it's not God. And he says, what we worship, however, will become like. So when we start to worship wrong things, it has a detrimental effect upon us. And it starts to do negative and unhealthy things in our lives because we become just like what we worship. Verse 9, he says, O Israel, trust in the Lord. Again, not in these other things. You trust in the Lord. They may trust in gold and silver, but you trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron. That was the, the ministers among the Jewish people to the ministers. Trust in the Lord. 
because he is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, any who reverence Yahweh God, he says, his people, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Notice the repetition three times. And whenever the Bible uses repetition, it's always for the sake of emphasis. It's not because God can't think of something else better to say. It's called God's thorough. And God understands that sometimes we need to hear things more than once. And so God has no problem being repetitious at times to drive the point home. What's the point God's making three times? Verse 9, 10, and 11, whether it's the nation, whether it's the spiritual workers and ministers, whether it's the people of the Lord, three times God says, trust the Lord. Don't trust this. Don't trust yourself. Don't trust others. Don't trust the government. Trust in the Lord. And he says, the reason why you should do that is he says three times again, verse 9, 10, and 11, because the Lord is our help and our shield. He's the one who can always help, and he is our shield, the one who can protect us and preserve us. He says, verse 12, the Lord has been mindful of us. That's a great reminder. They would think about how God's thoughts were upon them, and he will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. Again, he comes back to the same groups again. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. So you don't have to be somebody great. You could be somebody small and insignificant. God's not partial in disposing his blessings. Again, what's the emphasis there? The Lord is mindful of us. And the heart of God towards us, if we believe it in faith, is he will bless us. He will. How's it going to work? I don't know. But the Bible says he will bless us. Not because we deserve it, but because of who he is. Because of what he's like, his benevolent, loving character. He puts his favor upon his people And what is one of the primary reasons God has to bless us? Is it anything special about us? What does verse 9, 10, 11 say? All we're doing is what? Trust in the Lord. So God says, here's what I want from you. Trust me. Trust in me and I will bless. And I will bring my blessing in relation to your trust in me. He says, verse 14, sort of praying a a prayer of, of blessing. May the Lord give you increase more and more. The idea is may you prosper. May the Lord give you success and prosperity more and more. May you keep increasing. You and your children, not just you, but your descendants. May you be blessed and increase in prosperity. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. He says the heaven of heavens, verse 16, are the Lord's. But the earth he has given to the children of men. So he reminds there as he reflects verse 16 of how Genesis chapter 1 says that the Lord has given dominion to mankind over the earth. That was God's original design. The Lord dwells among the heaven of heavens, but he says the earth he has given. That was God's original plan. He had given the earth to the children of men. He had given dominion over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. We were supposed to rule over creation to subdue it and to utilize creation, the physical creation, for our benefit and our existence and our welfare. God gave mankind to have dominion over that. Now, sadly, as the 
curse of sin enters in, we somewhat forfeit that over to Satan when we choose to not obey the Lord ultimately. But God's original design was that man would subdue and use the earth in good stewardship, but that we would use the earth, not worship the earth. That's what go green is. Subdue the earth, use it, make good use of it, rule over it, the creation, animal kingdom. God says, you subdue it. I've given it to you as a gift for your use. And then he says, concluding verse 17 and 18, the dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence, that is into the place of the dead. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore praise the Lord. Now, you notice in verse 7, as we've talked about before, from an Old Testament perspective prior to light and immortality coming to us through the finished and completed work of Jesus Christ, they had somewhat of an obscured view of the realm of the dead and the death process. So here, it almost seems like, you know, we would look at that from a New Testament. Wait a minute, the dead don't praise the Lord. I I read in the New Testament that those who've died in the Lord are alive and praising the Lord around the throne of God. Uh, That's not what the doctrinally is trying to be conveyed here. The idea here is picture of loss of opportunity. He's saying the dead are no longer able as they've gone down into the grave and their life has been cut off from the earth in silence. They're not able anymore to have the opportunity to worship and bless the Lord as we do as we're living on this earth. That's why he says, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth forevermore. And so again, the idea here is he's saying, don't miss the opportunities to live for God, to serve God and to praise and bless God now. He's just saying, redeem the time that as we live and we function on this earth that God has given to us as a stewardship for this season of time, that he's saying, we should be blessing the Lord. We should be praising the Lord. As God's people, we should be chiefly characterized by those who enjoy praising and worshiping God. And I'll tell you why. Because when we do die, and we all will, the last thing you get sick of, if something tragic doesn't happen, the last sickness you get that you don't recover from is going to lead to the cessation of your life. But here's the good news. If you know Jesus, you're going to get to praise the Lord forever and ever and ever. So now's practice. Now's practice. That's why we should be chiefly worshiping as God's people. Let's stand. Let's